In episode 428 with Kasif Khan, we dive deep into all things genes. We talk about why you need to get your genes tested. We talk about how to get them tested, how to decipher the results, and how knowing your genes will improve your health and your life, plus so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Guess what, my beautiful friend? My fourth book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy is out right now. Number one, New York Times bestselling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times bestselling author Gabby Bernstein said, since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. Head to comparisonitis.com or Amazon to get your copy today. Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this episode because we have not gone deep into genes before. And I'm not talking about the genes you wear. I'm talking about your DNA and how when you know your genes, it can dramatically improve your health and your life. So I am bursting to share this episode with you. And for those of you that have never heard of Kasif, he is the CEO and founder of The DNA Company, where personalized medicine is being pioneered through unique insights into the human genome. With the largest study of its kind globally, the DNA company has developed a functional approach to genomic interpretation, overlaying environment, nutrition, and lifestyle on the genetic blueprint to create personalized health outcomes. Prior to the DNA company, he participated in a number of high-growth startups where he took an active role as an angel investor and advisor. He ran two successful marketing firms where his client list comprised Canada's top earners and most affluent individuals. From Canada's largest company to small neighborhood businesses, he has advised on business strategy in industries ranging from luxury retail, technology, finance, fine arts, healthcare, tourism, and real estate. He participated in over 300 million in revenue in his own retail business prior to launching consulting services to help others thrive. Growing up in Vancouver, his drive started from witnessing his immigrant parents struggle to establish themselves in their new country. Inspired by their ironclad work ethic and resourcefulness, he developed an entrepreneurial spirit from a very young age. And as CEO of the DNA company, he later learned that his neural wiring was actually genetically designed to be an entrepreneur, which I discovered in this episode, mine is as well. 
He has since made it his mission to build the DNA company into a business that has impact and whose success is measured not in dollars earned, but in lives improved. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 428. Now let's dive in. Welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Well, I haven't had breakfast in a few years. So yeah, I've been fasting. I, I shouldn't say that. When I'm on a trip or I feel like I need to load up, I'll have a good typically smoothie or eggs. But uh, the last little while I've been intermittent fasting. Yeah. And that's working for you? Yeah. If I do it right. If I don't do it right, I actually gain weight like crazy. And that's partly what we'll talk about today is I've learned about my body and how it actually works through genetics and streamline that. Yeah, I'm so excited for this conversation. Tell us about your story, how you got to where you are today and why you created the DNA company and what is the DNA company? My background makes no sense to be a founder of this business because I don't have the science background, not a clinician, not a PhD. We have an awesome team of clinicians and PhD that do some great work. I stumbled across this. Being, I was a PR marketing guy. So I ran a PR firm in Toronto where I live. We did work from the like the largest companies in Canada, literally the largest and second largest company, down to mom and pop shops. And I used to go home with migraines. I had eczema. I would be vomiting, like nausea. I didn't know why. And you just chalk it up if you don't understand health and wellness as I have a migraine problem. That's what it is. And I got to take pills to get rid of it. Or you just think that that's the thing that I've been blessed with is this migraine condition, right? So when I met a few people on the science side, I started to dive into my own health because it became debilitating. I literally went for an MRI thinking that I had something wrong with my brain. You know, it was it was too much. And that's when I learned that genetically, I was missing, forget about what version or what variant. I didn't even have some of the key detox genes, completely missing, right? And if you look at my ancestry where they lived, sort of northern mountainous regions, beautiful, clean, organic lifestyle. It, under, it makes sense what I inherited. It They didn't need it. So that was one thing. The other thing is genes that are around sleep, circadian rhythm, my ability to actually shut off and get good quality sleep, I was suboptimal there also. And there was a couple of things. Like, so that journey led me to, wow, this changed my life. Haven't had a migraine since. Haven't had my eczema has gone, psoriasis is gone. I literally handed the keys of the PR company to the staff and said, I love the work you guys have done fun working with you, you keep it. I found what I need to work on. And I literally walked away and built the DNA company. Wow. Okay. So tell us what the DNA company does. What is it? How does the testing work? What's involved? So genetics is everywhere. It's prolific, right? It's used in hospitals. It's used for consumer testing. But genetics exactly is that. Genetics. That's what does the gene mean? And because of that, it's been bucketed into focusing on genetic conditions. Things that you're born with, sickle cell syndrome, non-Hopkins lymphoma, some forms of autism, like you're born with those things. There's a genetic switch that's on or off. And unfortunately, you now have to deal with that condition. That's not the majority of healthcare problems. You're not born with diabetes. You're not born with cholesterol problems. You're not born with breast cancer. These are things that typically happen in your early 50s, mid 50s, because you've been doing the wrong thing for too long. So what we said, and this was my personal journey that led me to why is genetics only solving genetic? It's a, it literally, it's our human instruction manual. So the DNA company came out and said, isn't there more to this manual than just genetic conditions? Can't we understand 
Alzheimer's, weight loss, anxiety, you know, bad menopause, fertility issues. And we then started to study those things. So we would actually be patient-facing, meet patients one by one. We did this for three years. We studied 6,000 people. And we got to the point where we can now take those genetic profiles that are like, hey, you got a 60% chance of Alzheimer's to, by the way, for the 40% that didn't get Alzheimer's and for the 60% that did, here's the environment, nutrition, and lifestyle choices that led them in either direction. So that suboptimal genetics is sort of that framework where you start. The load you put on it is what we research and study, and that's what we do very differently. It's a lot more certain as opposed to the probability-based genetics. That's what we do. Awesome. So what is involved? I mean, I've done the test, which we're going to dive into. What is involved? You send out a pack to people's homes. Can you explain then what happens? Yeah. So typically there's genetic tests that are done through blood. We've used saliva, just a lot easier. So it's literally a, a kit to ship to your home or to your clinician, if that's who you're working with. You spit in a tube, it's sent back to the lab and it gets analyzed. And we sequence the DNA just like any other genetic company would. But we've built an AI to interpret it, which is the key. And we like to say that data is dumb unless you know what question to ask it. Right? You can have every one of your 22,000 gene sequence, but if you don't know what it means, you can't take action on it. And so we've brought it down to the genes that matter, hormones, detox, methylation, mood and behavior, the neurochemicals, the things that really matter. And from there, we're able to then make things a lot more actionable. So you get a series of reports. In those reports, we don't say you got this version of this gene, which means this. We say anxiety, low, medium, high risk, and here's why. Carb metabolization, good, slow, you know, we actually tell you about the problems that you're worried about. And the genetics are there also if you want to dive deeper. So our modalities are a lot different than the typical sort of genetic test. And then you cover five main areas. So when I did this, you sent out a pack for myself and my husband. We did the spitting in the tube and we sent it back. And then we got a very thorough report which covered cardiovascular, immunity, hormones, sleep profile, diet and nutrition, and executive function. So the reporting was very in-depth and very thorough, which I loved. And I want to go into chatting about one of mine, the diet and nutrition one, and what we discovered in that. I've got it open in front of me, but can you just talk about why this is so important that we look at this? Because you can go to doctors, Ayurvedic practitioners, naturopaths, herbalists, acupuncturists, you can go to all of these people. But if you haven't got this information, it's almost like you're flying blind. Would that be right? That's exactly what it is, meaning that everybody that you name has the solutions, right? They are the people you should go to. But at the doctor, at the naturopath, at the whoever, you have to sort of ask questions and assume because there's no stick to poke you at you know, and tells you here's what's actually wrong. They got to trial and error things. So what we're saying is if you understood the genetics, here's your instruction manual. You don't need to guess. Is it a diesel car? Is it a gas car? Let me try some diesel and see what happens. And let me switch to a higher octane. So like, well, here's the instructions. This is what you actually need to take as fuel. Or here's how your brain is actually wired. Here's your actual cardiovascular risk and why, not only the risk, but why the disease would happen so you now know what to do so that it doesn't happen. So ultimately what we're saying is everybody has to make choices. Whatever you're doing, you're eating, exercising, working towards preventing a disease that grandma had, whatever it is, what is the right and wrong choice for you and me? They're different. And we'll get into some of those examples. 
And that difference, and sometimes even it's what you think you're doing right. I'm going to go on the treadmill and do cardiovascular exercise. Well, guess what? For some people, that will actually cause cardiovascular disease. For some people, that's the actual thing they need to prevent cardiovascular disease. So now the trial and error, waiting until you've done things for 20, 25 years before figuring out what works, or knowing on day one. That's what you get if you know how to interpret this instruction manual we have inside. I love it. So our genes are our genes, and then the lifestyle environmental factors are what trigger our genes to be suboptimal. Is that correct? Right. So understanding your profile tells you, and I'll give you an example. So cardiovascular, right? And I use this because it's the number one killer in the world. 18 million people died of cardiovascular diseases. 50% of most Western countries are expected of their citizens to have a cardiovascular disease in their 50s. So why does cardiovascular disease happen? Most of it is based on what we call cholesterolemia, like blockages that block the arteries and then the ticker stops ticking, right? Because it can't get blood flow. So what's actually going on? We mask the symptom, meaning that it's when the cholesterol numbers go up. It's when things start to hurt that I go to the doctor and I say, I think there's something wrong. And they say, yeah, there is. You have to start taking this pill and we're going to bring that cholesterol number back down before it causes a problem. Nobody asks, why did my cholesterol number go up? What actually happened to cause that? We know that the root cause, and everybody agrees on this, the root cause of disease is inflammation, right? Cellular inflammation. The root cause of inflammation is what people don't look at, which is that load on the cells, whether it's the mitochondria, whether it's oxidation, whatever it may be, causing that load on the cells that ultimately leads to an inflammatory state, which then leads to disease. So take cardiovascular as an example. The endothelial, the inner lining of that blood vessel, that lining is called the endothelial. Your genes determine if you have a stainless steel version, okay version, or a paper-thin version, papyrus, poke right through it, right? If you have that paper-thin version, it's more prone to inflammation, much easier to get damaged and inflamed. If you also have a poor detox system, right, which I have, it's a lot easier for those toxic insults to enter the bloodstream and cause that inflammation. But now going back to the question you asked, if you have that combination and you live on a beach in the Caribbean, eating fish out of the sea, sleeping well, no stress, you're not going to get sick, right? I could have the worst suboptimal profile that's at much greater risk for disease. But if I don't cause the triggers to cause the inflammation, because guess what happens when you have inflammation here? Your body actually deploys cholesterol as a hormone to reduce the inflammation. And that's the beginnings of cholesterolemia. When cholesterol meets toxicity, it hardens and gets deposits. It, it doesn't move. And that's the blockage that starts. So the thing that we're treating, hey, there's a cholesterol number which leads to a blockage, which is true. Really, the, the actual disease is an inflammatory insult here, which is usually a detox or a methylation anti-inflammatory problem. But again, to your point, if you don't have the load, there's nothing to trigger the problem, right? And those are the questions you need to ask. Yes. And is this something you only have to do once, this testing? Yes. Your genes don't change, right? So that's the one thing that's unique about this versus any other test, any genetic test you do. Your genes don't change. What does change is the interpretation and the knowledge base. So you test once, but you can keep coming back to learn more because as we learn more, the reports become more thorough and science will never stop learning. So 10 years from now, we're probably going to tell you things that we're not telling you today from the same information. I love it. I love this so much. Can we look at my diet and nutrition results? And let's give a little bit of an insight into what we discovered about me and some of the things that I can do. So I've got it open in front of me and let's just look at my fats. It says I've got an average profile for fats. I'm a good candidate for a balanced fat diet. What does that mean? 
So now, how many people feel successful with a ketogenic diet? It's a great diet if it's right for you. For you, it's an okay diet. It doesn't matter who you are. The first month on a ketogenic diet feels great. Some people, it continues. For some people, after three, four weeks, they don't feel as good anymore. So when you get the results, will it say, because mine says average profile. So what will it say? Great profile, average profile, or low profile? Is is there just three options? What is it? Yeah, typically for most genes, there's three potential outcomes. So it'll say great profile, average, or not so great. For the most part. There's certain genes where it goes beyond that into you don't even have the gene. Wow. Right? So now imagine carb metabolization or fat metabolization. You're good, medium, bad. Okay. If you don't have it, you're zero. And there's certain genes where that's true. All right. So what does it mean for me for actually for fats, carbs, and protein, it all says average profile. So what does that mean? What that means is you are one of the few people for whom the sort of traditional recommended healthy diet is the right diet, meaning that you obviously want to reduce not so much carbs, but starches, you know, bread, rice, pasta, sugar, right? Because if you're not a starch metabolizer, then what happens is your body, this is where people get the carb crash and the post meal, I got to go lie on the couch, I, I don't know what I'm doing, right? Your body will always lean on sugars and starches as the first source of fuel, it's the easiest fuel to burn. Then it will go to proteins. And typically, not healthy muscle tissue, but like mutated proteins or frayed amino acids that need to be eliminated, then they'll go to fat. It's the very last thing. So if you have an average profile throughout, well, guess what? If you're not dealing with in your diet, on your plate, the starches and proteins properly, you're not even getting to the fat because you struggle with that so much. Then you layer on top of that, the ability to dive into genetically, what is your insulin response? So if your insulin response is high or low, that will also tell you if I'm a low starch metabolizer, and my insulin response is off kilter, I am guaranteed to get type 2 diabetes if I have a high level of starch and sugars in my diet, if I have the typical, call it Western diet, right? So for you, it sounds like you'd be more like paleo, meaning like lean proteins, your conventional vegetables, like you know your peppers and leafy vegetables, root vegetables, that type of thing, laying off the, you don't have to eliminate carbs as a whole, but the starchy stuff I would advise highly that you do. And now the beauty of how we look at things, that was the hardcore, here's what your genes are doing when it comes to breaking down those macronutrients. We also look at how does the brain perceive satiety? How does the brain perceive food addiction, food binging, leaning on food as a coping mechanism? So you start to layer, and this is where we go away from what we call genetics. This gene means this, this gene means that, to functional genomics, meaning how do you bring this system in and this system in that nuances the thing we just talked about? I don't metabolize fats that well. Okay, I also need to understand, do I want more fat because I need soul food because my serotonin is dysregulated and I need my mood is off? Things like that, which then give it more precision. So fascinating because when I scroll down a bit further in my report, it says your potential health concerns and then it's got obesity increased, binge eating, normal food addiction increased. So what does that mean? So there's two genes that actually determine your cognitive relationship with food, meaning there's one thing to you know deal with the nutrient, like what am I supposed to eat? There's another thing about how do I even perceive food? And there's two different elements to that. One is like satiety at the gut. Does my stomach actually communicate with my brain and know when it's full? And you don't do such a good job of that, meaning that it's easy to go for the second helping. 
you know, especially if it's something you like. And we can look at your brain chemicals to even nuance that some more. Then there's another gene called MC4R that determines how well you cope with satiation of the mouth, the satiety. So there's one thing to feel satisfied in the gut. Your mouth also needs to feel satisfied. And this is actually a survival trait where in order to get the right nutrients we need, your mouth desires multiple textures, multiple flavors, salty, soupy, crunchy. And the more of that you get, the faster you get satisfied. That's why, you know, when you, when you have a Thai food that has a little bit of it's that wow thing when it first hits your mouth because it's got the coconut and the salty and the crunchy and the soup, it's everything, right? So that feeling is what your brain's trying to get to realize that I've had enough things, I've had a variety, which means I probably had good nutrition. If I just eat five carrots, I'm not going to be satisfied here. So you're also dysregulated there. So what does that mean? For the regular person, this is a skill to be able to know I need more variety. But if you're dysregulated, I'm also going to graze. I'm going to go to the pantry and grab extra cookies. Or after I'm done my dinner, I need to have a couple of crackers. I need to have some cheese, you know, or maybe a glass of wine. I need more stuff, more variety. So the trick to that is the variety should be part of your meal planning, right? If you're eating, knowing that this is how you think, and if calories are a concern, then you want to plate your food so that you're getting the little bit of cheese and the cracker and the chocolate, the mixture to prevent that extra hit of food that you didn't even know you were doing. So fascinating. So one thing I can tell you when I look at you, and this is when I said that we studied 6,000 people, right? So one major layer that almost trumps what we say about food is the hormone pathway because your body's innate structure how you're built and designed is programmed by hormones. And when I look at you, you're what we call highly androgenized. And we know this because we've studied so many people. So typically a clinician needs to run your DNA to tell you what your DNA is. We're one of the few companies in the world that we can just look and talk to you and understand, you know, not only your neurochemicals, but your hormones, things about you, right? So just looking at you, your jawline, you know, the way things are structured, your shoulders, et cetera, androgenized, more testosterone, right? So what does that mean? Although you have this inability to deal with food at a logical level, and I shouldn't say inability, just less of an ability, your hormones are so prone to you having a chiseled, ripped figure that it's counterbalancing that even if you are eating, you're probably just burning it off anyway. It's, it's actually hard for you to store fat. And your jawline speaks to this. This is androgenization when you have the long, elongated face, when you have longer striated muscles, right? It's not big and chunky like a strong man, but it's more lean like a, a sprinter. That speaks to higher testosterone levels. Okay. Wow. And that's all genetically predetermined. That The hormone cascade, I go from progesterone to testosterone to estrogen. Men do that daily. We have a, a menstrual cycle from morning till night. That's what we do. Women have a menstrual cycle. It takes a month. It's the same exact cycle with the same hormones. It just takes a lot longer. And in that cycle, you just have different, rather than converting progesterone into a little bit of testosterone, you're converting it into a lot. Converting that testosterone into a lot of estrogen, you may not be doing that so much. So your net sort of result is a lot more testosterone. It makes me think about everyone on Instagram who is looking at all of these hashtag fitspos and fitspiration and what this person's eating and what they're doing for exercise and how irrelevant that is for you and your own body. Because you could be following these people and doing what they say to eat and the way that they exercise when it literally could be completely detrimental to your genes. Yeah. And this is why people hit plateaus. Anyone that starts, the first couple of weeks are great. You see, it, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Stop eating, start exercising. It's going to work. 
then you hit a plateau and everyone gets stuck there. Some people, luckily, happen to stumble across the right protocol, right regimen, and they don't hit the plateau. But for most part, people do. That's where the personalization is key because you're doing what everybody else is doing, but we aren't like everybody else. When I go back to hormones, we stumbled across this unintentionally. We did a lot of work in the female hormone health space, so like breast cancer, fibromyalgia, fertility. We did a lot of work there. And we didn't plan to do this, but we realized that by studying so many women, we started to see this trend that they all fit within one of six buckets hormonally. That means that the genetics of female hormones, you are one of six people. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean there's an infinite number of possibilities, but you have a one in six chance if you'd start to trial and error something of actually getting it right. So, you know, you talk about Instagram, right? So that makes me think about the Kardashians. Look at Kim Kardashian and look at Kendall Jenner, right? They're 50% the same genetics, but look at them. One looks like you, slim, thin, that sort of runway model look. And one has that the current Instagram fad look, all the curves and the big everything. That's hormone dominance at extreme levels of that delta value between them. And there's a big gap. So what you offer them, what they need are completely different. Kendall, I want more weight. I want more curves. I more. Kim is like, I need to re- maintain the weight. There's the, the fat just comes like this, right? That's extreme estrogen dominance. This is extreme androgen dominance. They don't need the same solution. They don't even have the same problem. Yeah. So that's where we've gotten to. It's kind of like you got a 15% chance of getting it right if you trial and error. And it makes me think, okay, so in that household, there's lots of kids. And I'm just giving this example because you brought it up. But like in the Kardashians, there's lots of kids and then there's very different body types. And the mother would most likely just be, as they grew up, making one meal for dinner for everyone. And they're all eating the same thing, yet it could be detrimental to one person and it could be okay for someone else. But, you know, it's like we need to know this information. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the family, who looks different? So Kylie got a lot of surgery done. That's not what she really looks like. She was much closer to Kendall than she was to the other sisters. Kylie and Kendall had a different dad, right? And their dad was one of the greatest athletes the world has ever seen because he was highly androgenized, which is what they inherited. The rest of the family, even Rob, the brother, has a weight issue. He always constantly struggled with weight because like his sisters, he's highly estrogen dominant, which is why he still has a full head of hair, nice skin with no acne. But guess what? He stores fat like like this. So even that one nuance of same mother but two different dads, they went in completely different direction. Ah, oh, that is so fascinating. And I've recently had my first baby, a beautiful baby girl. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. My husband has a son. He had a son previous to our marriage. So now that you're saying this, I'm curious because same dad, different parents, these two kids. I'm curious to see how they are different or similar as they grow up. This is like really opened my mind. I'm excited to see what are the similarities and what are the differences, almost like an investigation as they grow. Yeah. And the most interesting place where that plays out is up here. The two kids are at home. You come home. You had a bad day. And you're like, guys, you need to go to your rooms and clean up, right? Well, obviously, one of them is, isn't doing that yet. But eventually, <laughs> <laughs> you know, go to your room, clean up. They don't do it. They don't listen to you. And then you yell and scream, I told you guys to clean up. You didn't do it, right? Because you've had a bad day. One of them, five minutes later, he's already ignoring the upset mom because it just didn't phase him. The other one, for the rest of the evening, 
every time you walk by with the front, like, what did I do? What did I do? Why do they have two completely different reactions to the exact same scenario? That's all predetermined genetically. There's chemicals like noradrenaline, which we can predict in a child to what degree do they actually bind it, meaning how intensely do they experience negative stimuli and trauma. So when mama yells, we can predict which kid doesn't care and which kid it's actually traumatic for them, where you're literally imprinting that moment. I've got full goosebumps because that is such powerful information to have because, okay, say that child that it will cause a traumatic response. Maybe then the mother and father can just tailor the way that they parent so to not cause trauma for this child that they'll have to pay and get therapy for later on in life. You can tailor the way that you would parent that particular child to support them and to support their growth and their evolution. This is amazing. And as soon as I can, I want to get my daughter's DNA test done because I would just love to know how I can support her better. And I'm sure there's so many parents listening to this that are feeding their children healthy, delicious food, yet it might not be supportive for their genes. Yep. Even in my household, there's three kids, four-year-old girl who runs the house, There's a six-year-old boy and a 12-year-old boy. Even though they are siblings, two of them have completely different needs than one of them, right? So one of them is such a poor, the youngest one, is such a poor starch metabolizer that we went to a birthday party and that week she got gingivitis because of the inflammatory response of the sugar from one party, from one birthday party, right? She doesn't, we don't typically spoon feed them sugar. I mean, they'll have their snacks here and there, but not very seldom. And the other two kids, no problem. Mm. Because I have done their genes and I know that she has the almost zero capacity for metabolizing starches and sugars and her insulin response is horrible. So instant inflammatory response. And she literally got gingivitis within that week. And I warned certain people at the party, you are not meant to feed this child this stuff and watch what's going to happen. Wow. Fascinating. And of course, they're going to have the cake. They're going to do those things. And we are armed with the knowledge to help them bounce back as quickly as we possibly can. This has also made me reflect on my own family. So I've got an older sister and I've got a younger brother. And they would say, Melissa, you're so much more sensitive to foods than I am. And, you know, they are the types of people that can eat whatever they desire and it doesn't affect them. And if you look at my results, I've got a gluten sensitivity. I can see it's increased. I've got a lactose sensitivity that's increased in my genes, pesticides, mold, and other toxins in foods. It's all increased in mine. And maybe theirs, they don't have that, you know? So that goes back to gene deletion. So there's a gene called GSTM1, which you very rarely see on genetic tests because you have to run a very specific separate test for it called a copy number variation, meaning it's not about a variation or a SNP, which is a typical thing you look for. It's going back to what I said, you may not even have the gene, right? So in your case, you're probably deleted for either one or both copies from mom. You get one copy from mom, one from dad. And you, you're based on your report, you're missing one or two copies. So what does that mean? Where do things enter your body? You breathe them in through the lungs and you eat them, right? Some stuff enters through the skin, but these are the two main inputs. What was the name of this gene? I'm going to look it up on my... GSTM1. GSTM1. I have one copy and the result is average. So you're literally at 50% capacity. You're missing 50% of the instruction for detox at the gut. 
So when you eat food with pesticides, mold, like you said, your gut is supposed to. Are you familiar with glutathione, glutathionization? Yes. Right. So glutathione binds to toxins, send it to the liver to metabolize, get rid of it. You don't do that in your gut. So 50% of what you're supposed to be clearing is getting in, which causes the irritability and the gas and the cramps because whatever ancestrally you inherited, they weren't exposed to that stuff and didn't need it, right? So all of a sudden, something as simple as a beautiful, clean, organic bread, which you would think has no issue, gluten-free, right? No gluten. They may just use a drying chemical on the wheat just so that it stays longer in the grain silo and doesn't go bad. It's, it dries really quickly, less moisture. That little thing can trigger a huge response for you. And it's not something that's even on the, like you don't, how do you even look for that, right? And there's little nuances, like there's something as simple as we had a patient who we found his root cause of his migraines and his gut issues to be that he ate a lot of watermelon. <laughs> so we had to audit him. And it wasn't the watermelon. What is it? Watermelon grows on the ground. So it develops mold because it's sitting on the ground. When you take your knife and push the knife through the mold into the flesh, you're eating the mold if you don't wash it first. And that's what he was doing. And his gut didn't have the ability to clear that. You know, joint pains, migraines, brain fog, all these kind of autoimmune expressive diseases. It wasn't an autoimmune condition. It was literally mold from watermelon because he, like you, was missing part of the instruction. No. Mm. Now, somebody that's a full capacity, no problem. They have the frontline soldiers to go get rid of the nonsense that you don't need in your bloodstream. Yeah. So when my brother says to me, you're so sensitive and teases me for it, I can say to him, well, actually, (laughs) (laughs) it's not that I'm so sensitive. It's in my genes. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the crucial thing about this is the way that we look at medicine. You know, we are blessed to have the best acute care in the world. You break your arm. God forbid you have some terminal disease. We have the best hospitals to go and have that emergency fix. The problem is we use that same thinking on chronic disease that fix the pain point, right? I have colitis, I have Crohn's, I have irritable bowel syndrome, I have leaky gut, various gut conditions, right? The solution would be if you no longer have the symptoms, you're okay, right? I'm giving you a pill. But why did you get these things? Because like you, for 15, 20, 30 years, you're eating stuff that your gut can't clear. And you're causing that inflammatory load. And that inflammatory load all of a sudden crosses the threshold where you can't cope. And then it turns into colitis, Crohn's, leaky gut, irritable bowel syndrome. And you're wondering, why did these things happen to me? It's not a disease that a switch just turned on, right? It's 15 years of your body fighting the inflammation when it just couldn't take it anymore. So for you, not knowing this and continuing to make poor choices, now you have to be even more careful knowing what your gut is actually doing. And you can very easily prevent all that stuff. Absolutely. And when it says two copies, so the GSTT1, I've got two copies and that says optimal. What does that mean? Do you see the GSTP there also? That's got AA and then it says optimal. Okay. So GSTP is at the lung. So what we spoke of so far was at the gut. Now you have GSTP, which is like chemicals, fumes, whatever coming in. You do a good job of clearance here. GSTT is the most important detox gene, which is sort of, you know, everything that's in your blood. You know, if you were going on a long run in the oxidation you cause and clearing that and getting rid of it, right? If you don't sleep properly and so you don't recover, you need to get to work and clear. So that's the main glutathione instruction that clears things. And you're doing really well there. So the good news is for that, actually that gets through the gut lining, 
you do a good job of eliminating it. So you may not have the migraines and the joint pains that some other people have, but you're going to have the inflammation at the gut, right? The battle is fought here. Once it gets into the blood, you're doing a good job of getting rid of it. Okay, cool. And I love your results. The analysis gives you suggestions on things that you can do, which I absolutely love. So that that's really helpful. I wanted to talk to you about vitamin D because it says I am suboptimal. So vitamin D, we think if you look at it genetically, what it actually does is the most important micronutrient in the body. Of the 22,000 genes in your body, 2,000 require vitamin D to function. So what is a gene? It's an instruction that tells your cells to do things, very important things. If that gene can't work because it doesn't have the ingredient it needs to turn on or connect or activate something, which is typically vitamin D, it's not doing its job. And this is why we look at vitamin D as like a immunity, cold and flu type. Thing. It's not that it suppresses the cold. That's, again, acute thinking. Here's the problem. Get rid of it. It's that all systems are failing if you don't have enough vitamin D which means that you're much more susceptible to everything, including the common cold and the flu, et cetera, right? So now the nuance here that is not known or people don't get that you only understand through genetics is there's one thing to get vitamin D from the sun or from food and put it into the blood, right? That's step one. But medically, that's where it ends. You get a blood test, they check how much vitamin D is in your blood and they say, hey, you're doing good. But guess what? That's not where the body stops in terms of the usage of vitamin D. You have to take that vitamin D and transport it to the cell, from the blood. That's where it's actually used, in the cell. A lot of people that come from equatorial climates or worked outdoors, you know, as farmers, whatever, have a suboptimal version of that because they needed the vitamin D, but they needed to reduce the usage of it so it lasted longer and they weren't overdosing. Once it gets to the cell, you actually need to bind it and connect it. That's a third gene, another process. And so many people are suboptimal there, right? So now all of a sudden, you can go to the doctor and take your vitamin D and they'll say you're great, but you still have a winter depression, like your mood is off when it's not sunny outside. The menstrual cycle can have its peaks and valleys a little more exaggerated. Those irritable days can be like extra irritable. You get pushed over the edge. The immunity, if you don't sleep properly, you just don't feel as good. It's very noticeable. The vitamin D just takes care of all that stuff. It actually truly is a hormone. And I think you know a lot of people say this already, that if you truly understood how vitamin D works and what it does, it's a hormone. It's not a vitamin. My belief is that certain people that have rebranded as a vitamin, because if everybody had enough vitamin D, there'd be a lot less illness, which is not good for business, right? So it's been rebranded as a vitamin, but truly it acts as a hormone. And it's one of the most important hormones in your system. So now for you, the solution, by the way, I should tell you, now that we know you're suboptimal, the typical recommended dose is usually 1,000 IU a day, right? You would probably need Four or five thousand, and in the winter, ten thousand. But not all at once. You split it three thousand, three thousand, three thousand, or in the summer, you know, two thousand, two thousand. Because again, I can put all the vitamin D in the blood, but if I can't transport it fast enough and bind it fast enough, I've gotten rid of it faster than I was able to use it. So you need to give your body multiple attempts at getting enough. So to get five thousand, you actually need to take ten. That's interesting because I'm currently not supplementing with a vitamin D because it is summer where I am and I get in the sun every single day. So that's why I wasn't supplementing with it. So would you recommend still supplementing if I'm getting sunshine every day? If it's summer and you're spending long hours in the sun, you're probably getting enough. You know, most people can't do that, right? Or they won't consistently do it. They won't, you know, but if you're doing that consistently daily, you're good. 
that being said, it doesn't hurt you to take a couple extra thousand IU in the morning to jumpstart the system, get it going. But highly, highly recommended in the winter, even in the fall and in early spring, that you're ramping that up and you're splitting doses, multiple doses. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. I also loved the part where it talks about your behavioral genetic pathways. And I found this quite hilarious. You've got the question here. I tend to overeat at buffets or when eating my favorite meal. And it says for me, more likely. I am emotional eater, more likely. I tend to rely on food as a coping mechanism for stress and anxiety, more likely. And then it's got, I tend to snack or graze throughout the day. That's normal. I have binging episodes from time to time with my favorite types of food. That's normal, etc. So just talk a little bit about that. So that comes from serotonin dysregulation. So serotonin is your mood balancing neurochemical and your ability to experience or use it can be augmented by how long the receptors are, right? So it's supposed to be a certain length, but if you have a suboptimal genes, it can be shortened, which means that there's sort of more response to stimuli because you're not able to balance the mood. So in the moment, so the, the other thing we talked about was trauma, meaning that I feel the pain and I remember it. Serotonin is how did I experience it in the moment, right? What did it feel like? So if your serotonin is dysregulated like yours is, well, then all these prompts and stimuli poke at you. You know, somebody's chewing their food the wrong way, like, oh, I can't handle it, right? Somebody shows up late or they make too much noise or whatever, it, it bothers you, right? But at the same time, somebody tells you a funny joke or whatever, it, they can very easily pull you back in the other direction. So it's not bad mood, it's just getting triggered by stimuli, both positive and negative, very quickly. So when you get pulled into the negative, you actually perceive it as real. So when the people are you know, saying things that you don't like that causes you to get irritated, you actually think that it is that bad. Your brain doesn't want you to feel like that because cortisol levels go up, stress, it's not good for you. So the fastest thing you can think of doing is give you some tasty food to put you in a happy mood. And so you tend to desire soul food, the, the things that make you like, oh, well, that's so good, right? This is where I can't tell you how many people that typically are professionals and highly skewed towards lawyers, by the way, where we've solved their weight issues by letting them know that they lean on food as a coping mechanism. And why is this phenomenon of lawyers? Because the same serotonin that makes you sort of poked and prodded by stimuli also makes you pay a lot of attention to detail. So in your work, and you probably experience this, you know, when you're in meetings with people, you're catching and remembering and every little detail and nuance bothers you and you, you need to do something about it. And you, you go talk to someone, hey, we're working on this project, here's four or five things. You literally, every one of those four or five things matter to you. To most people, it's like, yeah, we'll get it done, right? If they didn't do it the way you actually said, here's what we're doing, to you, it's not done. It's actually frustrating, right? It's like, no, we said this and this and, this, and I wrote it down, right? They're like, well, we got it done. No, but we said this and this and this and this, right? And that's what makes you so good at what you do because the details can't get lost. They, they, and that's why we see this commonly amongst lawyers that they're always serotonin dysregulated because they have to be able to remember this much stuff and read through things quickly and capture every little nuance and then use it. Right. That's saying, so I don't know if this sounds familiar to you or not. Yeah. I'm laughing because yeah. it's me to a T and it's something that my husband pulls me up on. And now I can say, but babe, it's in my genes. So you can't blame me. <laughs> So now knowing that, so in work, it's a superpower because you capture and see all the little details. You don't forget. You remember every minute of every meeting. You remember whatever you're supposed to do. It bothers you if you don't do it. So 
the two things to remember there is one, you're much better at it than normal people, but you also remember that when you're working with people, they can't keep up with that level of detail. So you have to, 80% is good enough, right? In play, you know, at home, that irritability, that thing that bothered you, the thing that was actually very happy and good, it probably isn't to the degree that you're experiencing it, right? And the people around you are like, what's going on with her? Or it's actually not that funny. Like, what's the big deal, right? And in both directions. So just realize that that's how the people around you who aren't dysregulated dysregulated are experiencing the same thing. And it's real to both of you. Both your perceptions are true to you. Exactly. And no one's right. No one's wrong. It's true to each of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's really important information for me to hear because, you know, there are times at home where I can let things go a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah. And you just have to pick your battles, right? Yes, 100%. And, you know, one other thing I would add to that, because it said that you're not a binger, you are an entrepreneurial person, right? You seek reward. So typically where that comes from, and that, so we've we talked about adrenaline and PTSD, we've talked about serotonin and mood regulation. Another very important neurochemical is dopamine and how you experience pleasure and reward. It's the same chemical. And what we found genetically Everyone deploys dopamine the same way. Tasty pizza, did something good at work, dopamine, right? The way you experience it is how much do you bind, meaning that there's literally receptors in your brain and you have different densities of receptors. What we often find is people that are entrepreneurial typically have less density, meaning that they don't experience reward and pleasure like normal people, which is why they seek it, which is why opportunities sound so interesting to them and compelling and they're willing to take the risks, which is why... There's really three potential outcomes. Depression, because you just don't experience it, so life isn't good. Addiction, because you start to feed the reward path, and then every time you do it, you need more and more and more. Or achievement, because with the same neurochemical, you go down the reward path instead. And whatever you did at work yesterday just isn't good enough anymore. You need to do more and more and more, right? So understanding that and matching that with a serotonin dysregulation makes somebody sort of unstoppable entrepreneur because not only do you seek reward and the thing where somebody else may be considered flaky or somebody else because not interested no you're interested you're on it and you want to do it and you can't rest until you've done it and not only that as you're diving into it every little nuance and detail is bothering you and capturing your attention it's this superpower to be like an ultimate ceo that's so fascinating so not only looking at our genes is going to benefit our health and our life and our longevity, but also you could potentially look at your genes to work out what career path would be best suited for you. Yeah, we've done this in a couple of ways. We've done this within teams. So we've done, you know, Fortune 500 companies that are trying to determine who should be the next CEO, who should be the next CFO, right? Who's actually wired for that job. We've done this with teams to figure out how do people work together. We've done this in our own team, by the way. Like yourself, I have low expression of dopamine, and I also have a fast calm. Calm is the enzyme that clears the dopamine and gets rid of it. So not only do I feel it way down here, it lasts that long. So I, I'm a, like an ultra addict, which pushed me down the entrepreneurial path. One of our co-founders is the exact opposite. He has the maximum dopamine receptors and the slowest possible calm. So he's just constantly happy and experiencing pleasure. He doesn't need to do anything. We go to a meeting, we talk about 10 things. He walks out the door, he's like, yeah, I'm going to get them done. Next thing he's on Facebook, right? Because he's just already satisfied. He doesn't, for me, I just can't rest until those 10, 10. But the thing that he really wants to do and gives value to 
he will binge and disappear for a week and come back with a stack of paper this high and do a work that nobody else on our team could do. So we started to learn how we pair our skills. Where there used to be friction, we now work amazing together because we know how we support each other. The same is true of your kids. Now imagine your child that was just born, we can tell you today what career they're wired for. We can tell you exactly, should they be a clinician? If they see blood, is it going to be a problem for them? Or should, we've done work with the U.S. military and the Black Ops Special Forces for who should actually de- be deployed in active combat. You know, they've asked us to research and say, why do some people come back with PTSD? Some people can go for four or five missions, no problem. Some people can make great rapid decisions and some people hesitate. That's all up here. And we, we've decoded all that and now can teach them when people are mismatched for their role. This is life-changing information and a life-changing test. I feel like you do this test for you and your family. This is data that will change your life, the whole family. Yeah, it will. I speak to it. I'm a walking testimonial because I don't come from this space, but from my immediate family to my mom, to my sister, to my niece, to my uncles, I've changed the whole family, right? (laughs) Through now knowing what they're actually meant to do innately, like we've decoded their instructions, right? Wow. Can you talk us through a typical day for you, your morning routine, when you eat, your rituals? Can you kind of talk us through a typical day in your life? Yeah, sure. So I don't get up early. I'm forced to work late because we have a team in California. We're on the East Coast. We're in Toronto. So we're Eastern, they're Western. So I'm getting calls till one in the morning. So I'm up at say nine. I spend the first hour clearing the email box so that everybody else isn't waiting for me to be able to do their work. Right. So I I get rid of all that stuff so that they're all off to do whatever they need. Then I typically work on a project for like an hour, Uh, something big whether it's a new deal, whether it's a new piece of science, you know, working on a report to make it better, then I hit the gym. So 11 to sort of 12, 12.30 is gym time. Load up on the protein, so a half an hour. So from 11 till 1, I'm working on myself. From 1 till, call it 6, I'm on calls. I'm on calls, getting stuff done. Whatever needs to be sort of bumped up to me to make a decision gets bumped up. Then it's a couple hours with the kids. You know, so I'm at home. One kid's hitting me with a baseball bat. The other one's screaming, wants candy, not allowed to have it. You know, the other one's a preteen, so I got to deal with that. That lasts a couple hours, put them to bed. Then I get back to work because the emails that I sent in the morning now have 300 responses and I have to clear it again. So I spend the next hour or so clearing it. And then what I tend to do is I sleep at like one. From that time of like evening till one, I get random phone calls from investors and people in California because that's what time that's their evening. I try and block an hour at some point to wind my brain down, whether that's a movie, a book, a science article, music, praying, something, right? Because when you have what I have cognitively constantly seeking reward, I can very easily stay awake the whole night working because everything is so exciting to me. So I need to turn it off. I need to wind it down, right? So I make sure to purposely as a ritual do that every night. That's my day. It's a literally... For the second I'm awake to the second I'm asleep, something is happening. Thank you for sharing. Let's pretend you have a magic wand now and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. This could be on any topic, health, spirituality, anything you like. What book would you choose? Wow. You know, I will tell you one thing that I've learned in the last year, that everything we do in terms of identifying problems 
working with from top level executive NHL hockey player right down to mom and pop, nothing happens unless people actually do the work, right? We could tell them the worst news. We see breast cancer in three years if you don't do ABC. And I can't tell you how many people after two weeks stop doing ABC, right? So the number one thing that I've learned, and I learned this from a gentleman named Dr. BJ Fogg, who runs the Stanford University Behavioral Change Lab, that if you don't know how to change your habits, nothing's going to change. So he actually wrote a book called Tiny Habits, which teaches you how to so easily and intuitively, when you read it, you almost think like, I already knew this because it's so simple, but how to make those tiny steps that take you from I'm identifying the habit to I'm practicing it to I'm now scaling it and making it a part of my life to I've actually I changed my identity now, this is who I am, to now I'm actually changing the people around me because of who my new identity. So that one book, like anything you need to do, learn, teach, whatever, if you're not going to implement, then you're never going to use it. So that thing for me made a huge change, not only in our business and even how we help our customers, we, we actually teach them these habits, but also myself, because now I know that when I need to do something, I need to know how to actually do it. That's awesome. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. That sounds like an amazing book. It is awesome. Yeah, it's truly awesome. We're lucky that we got to work directly with Dr. Fogg, actually in our report. So the recommendations you're talking about, he helped us build those. The new version, which is coming out next week, which I'll share with you, it's a full digital, it's like a Netflix kind of experience. Uh, he helped us in design of how do you actually get people to flow through and do what they need to do, right? So anyways, yeah. So going back to that, I thought it was awesome. Wow. Awesome. I can't wait to check that out. Okay. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Yes, let's do it. (laughs) I'm interested to hear your answer to these. What is one thing that we can all do today for our health? Uh, I would say sleep better. That's the one thing that most people are doing wrong. And it's very easy to fix. Google it. You'll find three new habits for how you can sleep better. Do that today. What's one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? Well, I would say people undervalue their knowledge and their skills. I've seen this so much over and over that you only believe your skill is worth what someone's, you know, what the job is worth, right? Your experience, especially in today's economy, which is, you know, there's no borders to knowledge and gigs are almost more valuable than jobs. So understand that your worth is already more than you think if you understand how valuable your knowledge is to somebody else. You just need to find that person. And you have the marketplaces now to do that. that They exist. They're everywhere. Absolutely. And last one, what is one thing we can do for more love in our life? Oh, wow. So I'm going to be a bit selfish and say, first learn about your DNA because it will teach you what you even perceive the world around you as. How do you build relationships? What do you need from relationships, right? Those things that we talk about, the various ways people experience love through gifting, through touching, through whatever, it's all here pre-wired and it's easy to access. So what does love even mean to you? How do you perceive it? To what degree do you need it? Understand that first before you go out seeking and creating friction with people with the wrong tools. I love that so much. And I'm so excited to go and look at all of my reports in depth. I've got five to dive into and they are very, very long, but I'm really excited to dive in. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered yet? I mean, I go back to one thing I said earlier, which is that people have to understand that we have this incredible healthcare system to deal with acute emergency situations, terminal stuff. Don't think that that's the way you deal with chronic disease, health, aging, 
optimization fitness. You don't wait for pain to treat. You are born healthy for the most part. Some people have conditions, unfortunately, but for the most part, we are born healthy. And for the most part, the things that make us sick, we're not born with. The things that are the big killers, that are the big cost. So understand, don't fall into believing and taking for granted that the narrative is, I have to wait to 50 to see what I'm going to be sick with. And I have to wait to 65 to see what I'm going to die from. And then I got to spend the last 15 years of my life in treatment because that's what people do. You do not have to do that. Absolutely do not have to do that. If you understood what's potentially coming, like where am I weak? And then what would cause that thing to trigger and express into a disease? Just eliminate. Eliminate the thing that's the load that causes the disease. The disease won't happen. It sounds not easy, but it is that easy. The difficult part is actually doing it. Exactly. It's not rocket science. Yeah. This has been so amazing. I have loved this conversation so much. I'm so excited to go and read all of my reports top to bottom. I want to thank you so much for sharing everything today and for all the work that you're doing in the world and for creating this incredible company. You are helping so many people. You are serving so many people. So how can I and the listeners give back and serve you today? I would say it's the gospel. It's like what we say is the more you know, the more your identity has changed. And that's when you start to change the people around, right? Everybody in their family, their community, there's hubs of leadership. So if what you've heard today is important, if you think changing the future of your health outcome is important, become the hub of change. People don't know this stuff. And you see how easy it is to learn it. It's not, you don't need to be a geneticist. It's very simple stuff once you apply it properly. So become that person that changes everything around you so that you don't have an entire community, entire nation waiting to get sick than when they don't have to. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here, for all of your wisdom. It's been an absolute pleasure and I have loved it so much. I wish we could stay on and chat for another five hours. Yeah, me too. I got nothing to do tonight, so it would have been fun. (laughs) Well, thank you so much and we're so grateful. Thank you. No, thank you. It was awesome. I'm really excited to dive into the other reports that I have to really learn more about what my genes tell me. I'm also really excited to one day get Bambi's genes tested to see what's going on for her and what she got from me and what she got from Nick. It's really exciting. And if you got a lot from this episode, please subscribe and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed like magic. So you never have to go searching for an episode. And please come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me what you got from this episode. I love hearing from you and I love connecting with you. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think.